Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we welcome the one, the only, Barnabas Piper to the program. Barnabas works for B&H Publishers at Lifeway Christian Resources. He's one of the co-hosts of the popular podcast known as The Happy Rant, and he's the author of several books, including Help My Unbelief, The Pastor's Kid, and most recently, The Curious Christian, How Discovering Wonder Enriches Every Part of Your Life. Barnabas, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Here's the first thing I want to know. How does a guy like you, uh, sarcastic, cynical, uh, utterly incapable of glad-handing, low tolerance for cheesiness or slick productions, how, how do you survive in the Christian machine of Nashville? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> because all of that stuff is fodder for podcasts and blog posts and enjoyable conversations. Um, <laughs> so it's material. The, the, happy, the Happy Rant thrives on the ridiculous Christian machine. So it's it's a symbiotic, if tense, relationship. Right, right. But it's not just, I mean, it's material, but it's not just material. I mean, you have to, in some ways, have a good head about yourself because... I would think – I think we're a little alike this way. I mean, I don't know you real well, but your persona or the or your personality seems to resonate with me. I identify, you know, with some of the uh, perspectives and points of view that you have. And it would, it would seem to me that you could get real cynical real quick if you didn't have a good head on your shoulders. So how do you sort of guard against that? Yeah, cynicism is uh, would be what what might be called a besetting weakness for me. Uh, <laughs> something that I I do get drawn towards, and I think the only way that I can fight it is is constantly having an aim that I am shooting for. So something something intentional to be doing instead of constantly being reactive to the stuff that I think is dumb. And there's lots of stuff that I think is dumb, uh, similar to the stuff that you probably get bothered by. <laughs> um, so it's, it has to be so if I'm writing, if I'm podcasting, if I get into reactive mode, that's when I just sort of devolve into, you know, everything is terrible and pointing fingers and, and generally being unpleasant. Um, but if I can keep an aim in front of me, so I'm, I'm writing something to engage somebody's mind or help their heart or encourage them or make them laugh or kind of whatever that range is then cynicism kind of falls by the wayside. And the same in podcasting and just in conversation. And there's a thing about this Christian machine that it does have some benefits. Um, it's, there's a lot of ridiculous aspects to it, but you know, the Christian publishing world is how good Christian books get put out as well as bad Christian books. That's and right. so, you know, it's, it's beneficial to know how to, how to live in it and thrive in it while also not getting sucked into it. Yeah. Well, I, pr- I appreciate the, um, I, I mean, I know it's an overused word and somewhat cliche now, but the authenticity, um, I'll just give a, a, an example here. So I'm, I'm holding a copy of your latest book, um, The Curious Christian, and I notice that there are no endorsements on, on the book. Um, well, what's the deal with that? I mean, does nobody like you? or? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you talked about the you talked about the Christian machine earlier. Uh, so this is my third book. You've written I don't know nine books uh, yeah. or something. I it, mean, you you it's... come out with a book fairly regularly, <laughs> and it gets to the point where your circle of friends and influencers that you're connected to 
you've sort of tapped out on asking them to endorse and it becomes very transactional. And more and more as I've gained a foothold as, as an author, as a voice in any way, shape or form, whatever small foothold I have, I realize I don't want my relationships to be transactional. I don't want to, I don't want to email Jared Wilson and say, would you consider endorsing this book simply because I want the cachet of your name on my book. I'd much rather sit down with you and hang out when we are at the Gospel Coalition and have a conversation because that's relational. And so it, 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 the endorsement game felt very mercenary to me, and I just kind of didn't want to play it anymore. Um, mm. and, and that's true of kind of, and it's why there's no forward on the book either. I didn't want to go to somebody and go, your name would help me sell this book, which is ultimately what you're doing when you're asking somebody to write a forward most of the time. Right. Um, and so, and so I just didn't. I just quit the game for in, in that little way. Man. Well, you know the, the trade-off. I, I I understand that completely, and, and this may be alienating a lot of our listeners who who don't write books. But for me, what sort of mitigates some of the guilt is that those same people tend to be um, in the same cycle. <laughs> and so I know when I send them a request, um, a lot of times it's going to be coming back to me. So it's kind of this like, you know, uh, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. But I totally get the transactional um, thing because every every time I you know, publish a book, um, people are asking me, you know, to talk to Chandler, right? So he's the the holy grail, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, holy grail of endorsements. And I'm like, I, I can't do that every six months, every year, you know, um, it, it, you know, he's my friend. So, you know, reaching out that way just feels weird. Like I'm using him or something, you know? Yeah. When, when you start mixing friendships with business, things get fuzzy. It's why it's the same reason why, you know, it's risky to start an entrepreneurial venture with friends, because if it goes sideways, you've not only lost a business, you've lost a friend. And so I, I would rather let my friends voluntarily be excited on my behalf if they so choose. If they think the book is terrible, then I don't want them to say anything nice about it. Mm. I'd rather not them say anything at all about it. But uh, so I'd rather let friendships be friendships and let and let business relationships be business relationships. And this is a personal thing. I don't when I see a book with twenty seven endorsements, I don't roll my eyes and go, "Oh, what a hack!" I just go, "That's." That's not a thing I'm comfortable doing any longer. Right. It's not a moral thing. It's it's purely a call it a quality of life thing. This is a, it. It matters to me. Yeah. Well, kudos to B and H for um, you know giving you free reign there. Um, I, I do want to give you this endorsement. I'll I'll lend this endorsement. Um, when I asked my 15 year old daughter, soon to be 16, uh, if she would listen to this podcast, she said the only um, way she would listen to it is if I had Barnabas Piper on. You believe that? <laughs> That's uh, that is really high praise. Because <laughs> as far as I know, fifteen and sixteen-year-old girls are—they uh, have particular standards about things. They so do. You, I'm, you, uh, I'm, I'm honored. You are the the key get for us. So I'm glad that that I can, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess please my my daughter by having you on here. Um, she's reading your latest book. It's called the the Curious Christian: How Discovering Wonder Enriches Every Part of life. Um, so explain to me why this is such a big deal. Do you think that Christians have a curiosity deficit? Yeah, absolutely. I do. I think, um, 
I think you see it kind of in any different Christian camp because I think I think the the divisions between Christian camps, so reform, non-reformed, Baptist, and non-Baptist, um, charismatic, non-charismatic. Those divisions are reflections of a lack of curiosity in a lot of ways because divisions are usually built out of fear, um, and fear often stems from a lack of understanding, and a lack of understanding stems from a lack of curiosity. And so this is, and this is just one example, but I think, I think that that curiosity deficit feeds into us distancing ourselves from others, and in that way, it's detrimental to the kingdom. Um, I think it feeds into the way we treat each other online. You know, hmm. uh, you and I are active on Twitter and either participate in or observe the sheer, obscene, absurd quantity of Twitter fights. <laughs> and uh, that, those are reflective of a lack of curiosity because instead of asking questions and seeking to understand and treating people as people, it becomes, I'm going to take 140 characters and assume your entire theology based off of that, and then I'm going to attack you. Mm. Um, that's reflective of a lack of curiosity. I think societally, the the racial divisions, the socioeconomic divisions, I think the breakdown in interpersonal relationships are reflective of a lack of curiosity because curiosity is, is an intentional pursuit of truth and and, and truth would be, that is reality as God intends it to be. So seeking the thing that God intends in any situation, in any circumstance, in any relationship, and seeking to see that person as God sees them, and just look around, and it's very obvious we, we lack that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of um, when I first started, um, you know, the whole social media thing, um, blogging. Uh, and I think it was around 2003 when I started blogging. And, you know, that was before Twitter, uh, before Facebook. Um, you know, there might have been some, you know, variations or early versions of those things. I, I think it was even before MySpace. I'm not sure. But um, on the blog, there, you know, so much happened there in comment sections. And it felt um, it was a smaller pool, obviously, because the entire you know world wasn't on there. But I remember the Christian community that I was engaged in. Um, in, in Christian blogs, and it was a lot less tribal. Um, you know, there were, you know, folks from the, you know, emerging church, Anglicans, and, and it, it just seemed like we were Christians. That's what we had in common, and we found this new medium with which to interact with people around the world. And as the the years have progressed, you would think um, that it, this could have been a, a, a great medium for enhanced connection, but really we've, we've just become more tribal and as you say, sort of the lack of curiosity about each other sort of feeds this almost, if we can use the word fundamentalist impulse almost, to kind of like our specific flavor has it exactly right. Um, what are, you know, some other implications that, you know, that you sort of outline in the book of that curiosity deficit? What are the implications for the Christian of not being curious? I think the most profound one is is a is the deeply personal aspect of it in in our individual relationships with God. I think I think part part of it is reflected in this tribalism and this um, 
the the antagonism between different groups of Christians is is a it's fear based and it is I think I think a good portion of it is people trying to find their identity in a in a group in a theological system in a denomination in a style of doing church and what is missing there is a profound relationship with God a profound identity in Christ and curiosity is a is a really significant aspect of that because one of the first things I tried to to lay out in the book is this this sort of conundrum that we face of we are given the task of being an image bearer of God that is the thing we are created and designed to do and to be and yet we are finite and fallen and so we we are going to fail at that especially because God is infinite and perfect so how does a finite fallen person reflect well an infinite perfect God in whatever way we can and the answer that I arrived at was by per, by being persistently faithfully curious because we have infinite opportunities to explore God through his word through his people through the works that he is doing and has done in the world. And and if that is the mindset we take on, I think the the effects of that begin to flow out into our relationships with creation, our relationships with other people, our relationships through the church and in and in organizational contexts and in creative contexts. And so it but it has to start with this intentional pursuit of more of God. And that's not a new concept. You know, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of God, knowing God, these are these are classic concepts and classic books. Curiosity is simply putting a spin on it that shows this is exciting. This is enthralling. It's not just it's not just a discipline and a habit because those are words that make us feel uh, obligated and bored. So curiosity is trying to enliven that idea of we have infinite opportunity to discover more of God and reflect him better. And and then these side effects happen in all those other areas of life. Mm. It's almost, you know, sort of an aspect of spiritual disciplines or, or a devotional quality um, as well. In the book you talk about, um, for, those, for those of you who have a copy of the book listening, is around page 85, something that kind of resonated with me. Um, you, you talk about expanding your uh, palette artistically or, or the sort of artistic mediums that you would um, engage in. So you talk about ha- having developed this appreciation for photography and um, you know, the way that that's you know, shaped you and helped you. And it, it ran parallel. This idea that you, you, you discuss here runs parallel for me to um, mentoring, discipling, uh, you know, discipling a lot of young guys in ministry who say things like, I don't read fiction, or, you know, the only nonfiction I read is, you know, strictly theological, um, you know, nonfiction. And, you know, it, it strikes me, because I get in these ruts as well, you, you, I mean, there's really like two or three kinds of books that I tend to read, um, you know, most often. Um, and so what you're identifying here is is this rut is is um it's not just a lack of curiosity but it's almost like you're denying yourself some sort of personal development maybe even professional development can you connect the dots there for us like how does 
curiosity speak to, um, I mean, if we're talking about the, the art mediums in general, um, but, mm-hmm. but how do they develop us as people stretch us, I guess? Yeah, I think not only are you denying yourself an opportunity, you're denying God an opportunity to reveal himself to you. Um, people who say they don't read fiction, well, first of all, they just confuse me because <laughs> I don't understand what that means. Because fiction is not a thing. Fiction is like a thousand things. <laughs> there are The breadth of fiction is enormous. And so if you don't like Harry Potter, fine, go read something else. But it's, <laughs> don't say you don't read fiction. That's ridiculous. Okay. Um, but the but that I mean but the same applies to to music and the visual arts, film, performance arts, whatever it is. All of those are creative expressions of God's handiwork. Now there, you know, there are going to be people who balk at that because film is full of sordid content, and they're not wrong. It is, but it's still beautiful. It's still creative. It's still powerful. And part of curiosity is developing discernment because as you dig deeper into God, you can parse out the good from the bad and the right from the wrong. So we, we are, we are losing our ability to recognize the beauty and the power of God in, in creative work and in people by removing ourselves from those things. Theology is one of the least creative genres in existence <laughs> it's and this I, I work in for for bnh academic publishing this is this is the world in which i live it is informational it's not artistic you know 99 times out of 100 but the artistic and the creative needs to be in tandem with the truthful and the informational because those are the things that that resonate with souls it's why certain authors, certain Christian authors, are the ones who resonate across time. You get somebody like Lewis, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, um, because they were artful, and they, they were enthralled with creative things, and they were theologically profound people. Whether or not you agree with all the finer points of their theology, you can't deny the, the, the depth of their theology. No, and that's, that's right. what we should aspire to be, is deeply theological, but also enthralled with beauty where, where, it, where it is, whether it's natural beauty, artistic beauty, uh, in, in all of those expressions. And that will make you a better pastor. It will make somebody a better preacher and a better connector with people, a better discipler of others. If they, if they can weave those two together because they support one another. If you understand theology, you will appreciate beauty better. And if you appreciate beauty, it will soak into the theology and you will see things that, that are not necessarily written on that page. And so they, they, both of them become richer because of that engagement. Yeah, and I think we see, you know, the, the theology that endures, the theology that we're still reading hundreds of years later, um, you know, doesn't read like toaster manuals. You know, the guys who right. we continue to, you know, to treasure, whether we necessarily agree with every fine point or not, are the guys who could write and express in artful ways or, or, or exaltational ways, which is why I say to guys training for ministry, especially guys who want to preach, um, you, you have to read poetry. You have to read literary fiction. Mm-hmm. You, you have to read, you know, devotional theology because it, it, 
not only shapes you and your affections for Christ, but it helps you get rhythms of language, turns of phrase, uh, to understand um, how not just to communicate the gospel, but to uh, adorn the gospel well with beauty. And at the risk of at the risk of a, uh, of delving into something that certain theological people would be offended by, it helps you feel. Yeah. Like poetry is an emotional and deeply feeling expression of things, as is fiction many times. Right. And that's if you preach and all you're doing is relaying a list of truths, you are not preaching. Hmm. You're boring people to death. <laughs> There has to be feeling in it. There has to be, and, and, and then that feeling has to be communicated not just in tone, but in words. So it's not just about volume and vocal tone, but in the words that you use to communicate the significance, the beauty, and how, how this truth is moving. And so poetry, as an example, is, is how that can be done. And it's part of the reason I balk at the overemphasis of systematic theology. I think systematic theology is very important as a as a discipline, but it is not the defining discipline of ministry. And so it's but but often we have made it that at the expense of passion and feeling and beautiful artful communication. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's good. Hey, let's take a coffee break and hear from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. All right, we are back with Barnabas Piper, author of The Curious Christian. Uh, But I want to transition to the subject of of, uh, another one of your books, The Pastor's Kid. Uh, A lot of our listeners are in ministry. Um, I mentioned my daughter earlier, how she's a big fan of yours. She read this book. It really resonated with her, um, and it sort of surprised me. I don't know why it would have surprised me. Not that that the book resonated with her, but that, um, you know, that she might have been carrying this weight. I never thought that she would have an issue being the daughter of a pastor. Um, You know, she, you know, we didn't seem to have any obvious or circumstantial issues that were weighing on her, but I think I've underestimated that weight, um, the reality of that. I didn't grow up a pastor's kid, so you know maybe I, I was making assumptions that I shouldn't have made. Um, but I wonder if a lot of pastors um, who did not grow up themselves as pastor's kids uh, might need to hear uh, some good words from you. So what are some things that pastor's kids might want their dads and moms to know that they might not necessarily be saying, just things they kind of carry around in their heads? I think you touched on one already, and that's just the general underestimation of the pressure that rolls downhill. Mm. Um, I think a lot has been said and written about the pastor's personal life, the pastor's private life, the balance between, you know, uh, being available and visible to congregants, but then their own personal life and consistency and all of those things. 
but all of that stuff applies to the pastor's kid as well. Uh, just because we, I'm going to include myself in that, uh, not being a pastor, um, we don't stand up in front of people and preach, and we don't lead, uh, we don't lead the church. We are still in the observational sphere of ministry, but without the, especially, especially like 18 and under, sort of without the maturity and the toolkit to navigate that. Think about this. If pastors get burned out because of the pressures on them, what happens when that rolls downhill onto a 13 year old? Mm. That's, that's a very real thing. And it, it stems from constantly being observed. Um, I don't think most people in the church try to put expectations unfairly on a pastor's kid or a pastor's family. So this is not painting the church, church in a, you know, with a brush of they're all terrible. Quite the contrary. They're mostly very well-intentioned. But they can't help but notice the pastor's family, and they can't help but see. And all it takes is one or two good-intentioned people saying, you know, making a comment about behavior or about apparel or about music that's being listened to. And that child knows that they're being watched. Mm. And with being watched comes expectations. I have to be this kind of person. I have to meet these expectations. And the response to that is where the pastor's kid struggles. Because in that, they can lose their identity because they start to define themselves by outside expectations instead of the, the pursuit of relationship with Christ and a, you know, a, a, a real personal faith. And they can, they can rebel against it. You'll see that. There's a bit of a stereotype there that pastor's kids are rebellious types. Or they can just sort of bottle it up, and and it sort of boils over at another time or doesn't ever really get dealt with. And so they have this tense, unsure relationship with church where they sort of they recognize it as a good thing, but it's also a place they can't get too close to. And so that's, I mean, that becomes sort of just a swirling, a swirling mess of challenges for pastor's kids that, and I don't think I don't think most pastors recognize that 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 is going on in the lives and minds of their, you know, preteen teen kids. Yeah. What What's the bigger, um, or maybe they're they're equally big? So is the fear, the underlying fear or anxiety about not seeming religious oneself, or not seeming like a, a good, righteous pastor's kid oneself, or is it that I might bring um, disapproval or shame on, on, onto my dad or, or parents or something like that? Yeah, I think um, it, it varies from church to church and family to family. The worst, the worst scenarios are the ones where the pastors themselves put pressure on their kids. Yeah. I think that's where the shame, uh, bringing shame on the family comes from. You know, sort of that attitude of, you know, you pull up in the minivan to church on Sunday morning and parents turn around and look back at the kids and say, now don't forget people are watching. <laughs> right. And that sounds absurd, but in talking to several dozen pastors, kids, probably in the hundreds now over the course of the last few years, that's a story I've heard many times. So that puts, that puts pressure on the pastor's kid to not shame the family, which has no bearing on what is actually right or wrong or what they're actually struggling with. It's a, it's just additional, additional weight to bear and it's sort of a skewing factor. 
I think on the spiritual side, this was one for me that I that I dealt with more personally because the church I grew up in, you know, with John Piper as a dad, was it was biblically and theologically just rich, mm. kind of constantly through and through, all the time and everything. And so, for me, I I felt the pressure to always have the answers, to always, you know, be a spiritual leader type. And that played into my personality because I tend to be more outspoken and bold, um, which meant that a, a strength that God gave me became a weakness because because I was using that outspokenness to posture, as opposed to you know as opposed to growing in maturity into a an effective leader or an effective voice. I didn't learn how to do that or grow in that until you know out of college. So. There's sort of two. There's sort of two sides. One is that external behavioral exploitation, and the other is the spiritual. Like, I need to be the right kind of religious person, or the right kind of spiritual or theological person, um, in order to, uh, in order to represent not just represent my family well, but just sort of be the kind of person I think people want me to be. Yeah. Does it ever go away? Um, you know, you. I wasn't going to, you know, bring up your father, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you did, so the door. But, I did. but the door's open, so I'm walking through it. Does it, you know, being the son of John Piper? I don't know um, how old you are now, but you know, you're your own man. Um, does that sense of, gosh, I, I'm the son of John Piper, sort of anxiety ever creep up? Still, does that stigma still stick around? Yes and no. Um, I mean, I'm 34 now, and so. By, by any measure, I ought not to be stacked up against my dad in terms of age, place in life, professional accomplishments, whatever it is you want to look at. Um, but I also function in the same universe he does. You know, I'm on a podcast called For the Church, where I just assume the majority of the listeners are familiar with him. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's sort of the nature of, of my life. And so I've sort of voluntarily kept myself in the shadow of John Piper because that's also a world where I feel I am best suited to, to do good work and effective ministry. Um, but that also means that there are times when those expectations come up. And I mean, again, people still come up to me and they're surprised by the kind of person I am <laughs> because they would have thought John Piper's son was different than that. Yeah. Or, you know, two, two or three times a week on Twitter, somebody will respond and go, well, what does your dad think about that when I tweet something? <laughs> And I, I don't really care, to be honest. Um, he's on Twitter. He can tell me if he doesn't like what I tweet. Thankfully, he leaves me alone on that stuff. But uh, it's th- those expectations are still there. And then there's still some of that internal, you know, do I have an obligation to his reputation in how I handle things? And the only way I can navigate that with integrity is, and this is going to sound, I don't know, it's it might sound sort of cheesy or cheap, is to remember that I only have one person who I'm obliged to please in how I do what I do, and it's not John Piper. Mm. It's, it's the same person John Piper would be aiming to please, and that's Christ. And if I can figure out how to do that and keep that at the forefront in, in the way that God has made me personality-wise, gifting-wise, I'll be okay. Um, but those pressures do still exist, yes. Yeah. Well, what are some things, okay, so if I'm listening 
And you know, maybe I've thought about this before. You know, I'm just an average person in a church. I, I I like my pastor. I care about my pastor's family. Um, I you know, I, I want to help in some way, but not in an overbearing way that actually, um, you know, enhances the <laughs> anxiety. Um, what are some things that you know churches can do? What are you know what advice would you give to folks to sort of help them care for pastors' kids? Yeah, I think I think the first, and this is just super super practical, specifically for pastors' kids. But I think I think any pastors' wives who heard this would agree as well. Is do not engage them in a conversation you wouldn't engage, you know, like a stranger because you you think you know your pastor's family better than you actually do and far better than they know you um unless you actually are personal friends you know your next door neighbors you're engaged in a in a community small group whatever whatever context it is unless you're in that context don't don't treat them as if you know them well because your your well-intentioned comments to the pastor's kid about their friday night football game or even just what they're wearing that day, like, oh, you look lovely, and you use their name, like, they may not even know your name. And and you've just made it weird. Mm-hmm. And you've made them feel like they're being watched, even though you are trying to be kind. Mm-hmm. And so there's just an observation of that strange relational dynamic and giving them the proper space unless you're an, a, a close friend. And if you're a close friend, be a great close friend because that's the other thing that pastors' families are often lacking is the kinds of friends they could just be themselves around, um, you know, at their best and their worst, at their most expressive and on their worst days. And, and so that's another thing. And then I think the third thing is, um, is just pray for them. Cause when you pray for somebody, a, you're, you're lifting them up to God and that's a, that's a significant thing. Uh, and then you're also positioning yourself as somebody who genuinely cares about them instead of simply having expectations for them. And, and so I think there, there's, so there's the relational dynamic of space. There's the, if you have an opportunity, be a close friend. And then there's just pray for them because it positions them before God and you before God in, in the right spirit of things. That's great. Barnabas, thank you so much, brother, for being on with us. Oh, I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for asking. Yeah, I've, for your sake, uh, I'll be praying that the, that the Twins and the Timberwolves both have better seasons next season. Well, since you're in Kansas City, I'm just going to go ahead and say uh, thank you on behalf of the Twins for helping them get off to <laughs> a strong start this year. Good. The Royals were uh, were very generous. Nice. We've been speaking with Barnabas Piper, marketing director for B&H Academic Publishers and author of the book The Curious Christian. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.